Bible or using your app, we're going to be in 2 Kings um, chapter 5. 2 Kings begins with the story of a guy named Elisha. And Elisha was a prophet, and he was uh, kind of um, the right-hand man to a prophet named Elijah with a J. And Elisha, when Elijah was uh, at the end of his ministry, Elisha asked for a double portion of the Spirit of God that was on Elijah. And so Elisha becomes even more powerful uh, as far as God using him or God's Spirit working through him in, um, in Second Kings and in his ministry in the world. And the world at that time uh, centered, or at least the scriptural story, centers around uh, pretty much the city of Jerusalem, which was in the country of Israel. But Israel had had kind of a civil war where it had split between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. But the northern kingdom was commonly called Israel, sometimes it was called Samaria, and the southern kingdom uh, was called Judah, and then there were these other countries all the way around it that had different names according to the large powers that were in charge of it. And so Elisha's story involves kings getting together, like the kings of uh, Israel and Judah and uh, Edom getting together to fight the king of Moab, a big war out in the desert. And today's story actually includes the country of Aram, and uh, it is uh, where like modern-day Syria is today, if you understand the transitions and the travel and those kinds of things. What we're talking about, like what we're focusing on in the beginning of Second Kings, is bringing your life back into line uh, with the life that God has for you. Uh, for a lot of people, when we look at the beginning of a new year, it's kind of a fresh start. And after 2016, a lot of people were feeling like we could really use a fresh start and a refocusing and just kind of, we want not to refocus on ourselves, but to refocus on what God is doing, what God is doing in us and what God is doing through us. And so 2 Kings uh, chapter 5, I'm going to read through this story and talk about it a little bit, um, but it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible or if you're using your app, uh, you can use that. <clears throat> this is the story of a guy named Naaman. He was commander of the army of the king of Aram. Naaman was a great man in the sight of his master, and he was highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, there's a lot in this, uh, just to talk through it just for one second. Uh, Naaman is this great guy, and he's a commander of the army of Aram, which is kind of a lot like being the second in command at this time. If you're a commander of the army and all the soldiers listen to you, then the king had better respect you so you didn't just run a coup and take over. What's interesting is he's not a Jewish person, and the Jewish people were the people of God, the people that God was using to show himself to the world. Aram is given victory... Uh, through Naaman because the Lord had given victory, which is a strange thing for a person because this is a story written by the Israelite people for the Israelite people in Second Kings. Written, this story comes from around 800 BCE. And for God to be working in those people is a strange thing for people to think. It'd be like saying that uh, for a lot of Christians that God did something and God granted grace to someone who lives in a country that's not allowed to travel to this country. <laughs> It'd be like saying someone is a faith that's not Christianity, 
but God is blessing them, which is, we would say that, oh yeah, God can bless whoever he wants, but there's kind of this weird tension that you feel in there, like God blesses people who have no, um, no regard for him or no even, even no idea that they, should have a re- that they should have regard for him. God blesses whom he chooses to bless according to his purposes. And so God decided that he would give victory to the country of Aram through Naaman. Now, bands of raiders had, from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served uh, Naaman's wife. <laughs> she said to her mistress, Naaman, Naaman's wife, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. And the king says, By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, which how much that is is really just a point that it's a ton of money, and ten sets of clothing, (laughs) which apparently was important. Some of you go away for the weekend and take ten sets of clothing, but just to compare your riches, you would be like a king of Aram. Uh, The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, this letter, uh, sorry, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes, which is a sign of stress and mourning and freaking out uh, in general. The king says, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. Do you see the political tension that this guy is feeling? This random king that has apparently invaded Israel in the past and taken captives now sends a random guy with leprosy. And the leprosy, the word for leprosy actually means any skin diseases. So it may have been uh, leprosy all over his body or it may have been some kind of skin disease that he had in one spot. But anyways, it would make him unclean to the people around him. So they send this guy. This guy has a random disease. You heal him. And the king of Israel is like, if I don't heal him, he's going to send more bands of raiders and take more of us to be servants and slaves over there. Why on earth would he send him here to be healed when I have no ability to heal him? So when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, which is a polite way to say was freaking out, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now, why does it mention that he brings his horses and his chariots? Horses and chariots, everyone who would have read this originally, knows what they're saying is he goes with all of his military power. Most of the Israelites lived in hill country, and they lived up in the hills and in forests and in mountainous regions because it was difficult to get the horses and the chariots to attack those regions. They took advantage of the geography to defend themselves. They lived in a place that was difficult to live in so that higher military or stronger military powers had a difficult time uh, picking a fight with them. And so when he goes, he takes all of his military might with him. And Naaman, as a great man, a well-regarded man who God had used, goes and he stops at the door of Elisha's house, which is the correct thing to do if you're a great man, because he gives Elisha the opportunity to come out of his house 
and greet Naaman in the way that his greatness has. If you have someone great come to your house, they stop at the door, and you have the opportunity to open the door, to welcome them, to hold the door as they come into your uh, entranceway, to like take their jacket and hang it up somewhere nice, right? Like you, you have these opportunities to treat someone nice who deserves to be treated nice. So far, this sounds like a great redemptive history story. Like, just to take a break and sidebar for a second, Naaman is an, <clears throat> Naaman is an outsider. Naaman isn't a part of the people of God. So he is ceremonially, uh, ceremonially according to the Old Testament, outside. He, if, uh, if they were allowed to worship, he wouldn't be allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. He wouldn't be allowed to go into the more sacred places in there uh, to get that close to their God. Naaman also has a skin disease. And so according to the Old Testament, that skin disease makes him unclean and ceremonially unclean, not morally unclean, ceremonially I'm going to say that as many times as I can until I say it right. Unclean, so he wouldn't be able to enter into the proper worship of God. Everything about him says outsider, outsider, outsider. And you know how this story is going to go. He's eventually going, God's going to turn things around for him. And it's going to be this great story about how God works in the unclean. And God works in the outsider. And God works in the person who isn't favored. And Naaman comes to Elisha's door and stops there so that Elisha can come out and greet him. And it's going to be this great story about how the man of God comes out and greets people, and, and it's going to be great. And then the only reason I'm telling you this is because it's actually not going to be. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, now, someone important, the most important person in the surrounding culture comes to your door. Do you go answer the door? Or do you send a messenger to tell them what you want them to know? You, you answer the door. Elisha sends his messenger. And he tells him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, which is a river, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Elisha goes and tells him, not even come into my house, not even welcome, not even it's an honor to have you here, Naaman. But instead he says, go wash yourself in that river and you will be healed. Your flesh will be restored. But Naaman went away angry. And he said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I have been washed in them and be cleansed? And so Naaman turned and leaves in a rage. This is a, like, this is a fantastic movie so far because this is a twist that you didn't expect. You think God's going to take this outsider and he's going to heal him and all these great things are going to happen and then the man of God sends a message saying, Go wash in the apparently dirty or apparently polluted, apparently not good enough Jordan River, and everything will be cool. And Naaman reacts with rage and anger in saying, don't we have better rivers in Damascus? Take your Jordan River and do with what you, I don't need that, I'm going back. I wanted this guy to come out 
and wave his hands and call on the name of his Lord, of the Lord. I wanted him to stand before me and heal me. And Elisha did not fulfill the prideful needs of Naaman. Thankfully, Naaman's sermons, servants uh, went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have not done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? If the prophet had said, do something great, climb this mountain and bring me a flower that only grows there in the springtime. <laughs> that sounds like the plot of a Monty Python movie, but... If the prophet had said, do something difficult, you would have done it. So he says, do something easy, so why not just try it? And Naaman, like most people who react in anger and rage, decides to do it. The great thing is we don't know his motivation, whether he decided, all right, I'll just do it, or, or he decided, I'm going to go and do it just to prove that I'm right and he's wrong, that he should have done these things. And so Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. And as the man of God told him, his flesh was restored and became like that of a young boy. He dips himself in the river seven times, his leprosy is cleansed, and not only that, his skin becomes like that of a young boy. Naaman actually gets angry because God, or the man of God, doesn't come out and react in the way that he thinks he should. God decides to operate in God's way, and Naaman rejects God's way because of his own humiliation, because of the simplicity of what it is to follow God's way, and because of the narrow-mindedness, perceived narrowness of God's way. Dip in the Jordan River when these other rivers are better. And these other rivers in Damascus are better than these rivers here in Israel. Naaman rejects the message of healing from the man of God and by proxy rejects the message of healing from God because it is too humiliating, too simple, and too narrow. It's a, interesting to me because most of the people that I talk to today reject the gospel message because it's too humiliating, too simple, and too narrow. It's humiliating to say, I can't do life on my own, and I need God, or I need God's Spirit in me in order just to live. To admit, I, like when people say, oh, Jesus is just a crutch, and to admit, yes, and I need that. To admit humility is a reason that people use to reject Jesus. The simplicity of Jesus. You put your full faith and trust in Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, which means putting your full faith and trust, he becomes the king of your life and the savior of your life. You admit your need for forgiveness of sins and you will be saved. You spend eternity in heaven this way or eternity apart from God that way. It's too simple. We want a religion where we can earn some points or level up. <sighs> It's true. Have you been watching the documentary on Scientology? People spend tons of money to level up. And they believe that atomic bombs were dropped on volcanoes and it gave them alien souls. But I'm leveling up, so it's cool. Ignore that part. <laughs> Do not look behind the curtain. 
the, it's too simple. And then the third part, that it's too narrow. Because Jesus says, no one sees the Father except by me. We like, in our culture, and all of us just because we live in this culture, we like a belief system that says everyone goes to heaven. That everyone's talking about the same God, they're just using different names for it or doing different pathways to get there. And when the scripture teaches, well, the scripture teaches that everything does, all religions do lead to God, but when they get to God, one religion takes a sharp right and all others take a sharp left. The Bible says eventually everyone will be faced with God and every knee will bow and every tongue will declare that Christ is Lord. It's just for some that's a radical beginning and for some that's a radical ending. We prefer culturally a broad belief system where because I believe this and because God loves me anyways, everything must be cool. And so the faith, or the gospel, sorry, not just the faith, the gospel, the message of Christ, the scripture teaches, is a stumbling block for the proud, for the people who ha are strong, for the people who have figured things out, for the people who are broad-minded and open. The gospel becomes a stumbling block because the only path to gospel healing is gospel humility, is Gospel simplicity is gospel narrowness. And what really comes against that, what I think might be, not just me, great, most great theologians would say that the thing that comes against that is the same sin that Naaman has, the sin of pride. The sin of pride is one of the most sinister sins that exists. It's radically difficult to diagnose. When I talk about the sin of pride, we would say, I think I kind of understand that because, and you have a person in mind. For some of you, it's your pastor. <laughs> but you have someone in mind. Oh, I know someone who is too proud. I know someone, oh, they, they struggle with pride. And pride in their ego and that kind of thing is going to trip them up. Because pride is this thing that gets inside of us it isn't a demonstrative sin. It's a sin that gets inside of us and slowly like oozes into our lives and changes who we are, not just what we do. Pride is, I will love God. I will serve God. I will forgive. I, I will serve, go, do anything but this thing. Anytime you're following God... <laughs> Okay, when I was a youth pastor, I'd say, anytime you stick your butt into serving God, anytime there's a butt in that line, <laughs> I will do anything that God asks me to, but this thing, that's a signal of pride. Because there's something that is out of bounds for me because of who I am. I am a great man of I'm a great man who God is using and God is granting victory to. I'm an influential person. I am strong. God is obviously using me for great things. So that thing I won't do. So that thing is out of bounds. And to deny that you have that thing, I think uh, might be worse than the pride itself. 
Because I would bet that all of us have that thing. We just do. And really it's just a matter of how big, oh man, it's a matter of how big your butt is, <laughs> crying out loud. <sighs> that was stupid. And I saw it coming and there's no other, like, there we are. We're on an icy road and the brakes aren't working. Whatever, however big that part of your life that I'll follow God but not over here is a signal of how great your pride is. When following God and the way of following God is the way of humility, is the way of a purposeful, um, voluntary submission to the authority of God, to the authority of His Scripture, to the authority of the leaders, uh, sorry, to the authority of his church, to the authority of the leaders of his church, to the authority of the leader of your life group, <laughs> to the authority of your Sunday school teacher, to the authority of your parents. All that goes down to what Christianity is, is this voluntary submission to what is happening. All right, here's another sidebar. This is why I would contend that America is a Christian nation. But not a Christian nation because of its values, but a Christian nation because it voluntarily submits to the will of the people, which is the Christian thing to do. When you have elections and things like that, nobody go, well, okay, rarely do people go and shoot people over the results and then, you know, name and the commander of the army decides to take over. It doesn't happen. We do marches in the streets and people hold signs which I know lots of people don't like. To me, I think it's beautiful. I'm like, this is fantastic. We're Christian. And all the people out there have signs that are very not Christian, but <laughs> not all of them. Some of them are very, very uh, I think Twitter has made us much more witty in our protesting, which I appreciate. <laughs> but to be Christian isn't necessarily uniformity, but it is submission to the authority that God has set up. And when you read your scripture, it says God is in control of who leads. And you can look and say, hmm, that's true, but not in this case. Not in this case. And all that happens is it's a different group that's saying that. There's one-third of the country that used to say it, one-third of the country that's saying it now, and one-third of the country that's ignoring it because they've given up hope. Oh, and then there's a small amount of the country that's Canadian over here. And we're over here going... You could, have, you could just go to the queen and ask for forgiveness. <laughs> Maybe not a good solution because she's nearing the end of her life and the guy replacing her, oh gosh. But this is why this is all a sidebar. <laughs> but that voluntary submission to authority happens in your classes, happens in your job, happens in your family, and we see that in this story in the servant girl who's been taken captive and yet knows a solution for healing for her captor and tells them. If you want to find the gospel in this story, it happens at the very beginning. When the servant girl says, I know this way that your life can be better. I know this way that everything can be better for you. Making her captors more powerful. Whereas most of us would say you want to subvert the authority in that situation because you're an involuntary, kidnapped slave to this family. The way of 
what we see is the hero or the gospel hero of this story is this girl who decides that working for the better of others, including those who have violently taken her away from her family, her home, her life, her land, working for their betterment, voluntarily submitting to the authority that apparently God has allowed her to be under. That's the shocking turn in the story. Naaman's pride keeps him from experiencing at first and almost permanently keeps him from experiencing the healing that God wants in his life, that God wants to give him. Like God is saying, it is in my best interest to heal you, to show off my own powers in your life. And Naaman almost misses it because of his pride. The question is, right, what is your Jordan River? What is your thing that God's asking you to do or that you felt God asking you to do, but you know over in Damascus there's these better rivers, and I can just go in those rivers if I want to, where God is asking you to do something that would be humiliating or too simple or too narrow, where God is asking you to follow him into this area, but you said, God, that's great, but over here I've got a ton of influence and a ton of great things going on for you. When God's called you, maybe, to simplicity and narrowness and humility. To me, in a, in, in a generation that's being raised on YouTube and the sole goal in your life is to be famous on YouTube, the radical nature of the gospel is that there will be things, great things that you do that no one will ever hit a like button on, ever. And the scripture actually teaches that those things that are done in secret are seen by your Father in heaven and will be rewarded in heaven. And so you have this opportunity for like buttons on earth or rewards eternally in heaven. It seems easy, doesn't it? I'll tell you in a second when I'm done filming a YouTube video. <laughs> because the draw and the uh, temptation towards pride is so great it's radically difficult to overcome. Humility isn't a button that you can turn on or off either. It isn't like, you know what, today I'm going to be really humble. And then you go around just being humble. Because as soon as you think you're doing a good job of being humble, you screwed up being humble. As soon as you go to Sunday school and they give you a prize for being humble, a little button, as soon as you put that button on, you've lost we give you a certificate, humble kid. As soon as you show that to your mom and she takes a picture and puts it on Facebook and you get a like, oh, you've messed it all up. Humility is something that you have to move into. And I think there's two parts to humility. I think the, the first part comes with that voluntary submission, which means immediate obedience and response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit on you. Immediate. When God says, this, or God calls you out and you feel it in your soul on this, you immediately respond to that. The scripture actually talks about when you don't respond to that, your heart hardens, and it refers to that as actually leading into what is uh, called in the Bible the unforgivable sin. Because when you resist the conviction of God in your life, and resist and resist and resist. Your ability to resist God grows, and ultimately your ability to be unforgiven it grows to the point where you're strong enough, even though God is working so hard 
to have a relationship with you, you're strong enough to avoid having a relationship with God. You're strong enough to get into hell when God is working so hard to get you into heaven. The unforgivable sin is referred to as far as a building a hardness in your heart, building your heart so stone cold hard that God can no longer draw you into a relationship and an eternal relationship with you. That voluntary submission and immediate response and immediate obedience to the conviction of the Holy Spirit is key to your humility. Because I promise, if you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, you will be humbled. God's Holy Spirit doesn't very often lead to places of great pride. God's Holy Spirit almost always leads you downward. So the measurement of greatness in God's eyes is the measurement of your life that's been stripped away so that only Christ in you is revealed. The scripture teaches that Christ is in us. And pride is the disguise. Pride is how we hide the Christ in us. One of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite authors, his name is Francis Chan. He pastors a church in San Francisco, which is way smaller than this one. And Francis Chan says, he used to pastor a huge church in California, Southern California. He said, if Jesus started a church in my town, my church would be bigger. Jesus. Isn't that terrifying? Because I'm fairly certain, like I've been to seminary, I could kill Jesus in a church size contest. Like Jesus has a crowd of 5,000 and he feeds them and then he runs them off. After three years of ministry, Jesus has taken this crowd and he fed 5,000. There was probably five to 15,000 people there. Jesus feeds all of these people. By the end of Jesus, three years into his ministry, he's narrowed it down to 12 guys, one of whom sells them out to be murdered. And when he's hanging on the cross, there's one guy. Jesus, I'm just gonna, I've said a lot of bad stuff today. Jesus sucked at building a church. Like, he was terrible at it. And if he had a church in our town, because we're so good at this, we would kill it compared to Jesus. We'd be nice to Jesus, take up a special offering to give it to Jesus, because he's Jesus after all. We would think about inviting him over to be a special speaker, but he always says stuff that makes us uncomfortable, so we probably wouldn't do that too often. He does feed everyone, though, when there's a big crowd, so maybe that group would like to have him here more. The other part of this, this voluntary submission that looks like immediate obedience is the voluntary submission that is deferring to authority and serving the authority. Meaning this, the things that are the people who have been set up authorities in your life, you defer to them because that keeps you humble and you serve them because that keeps you humble meaning your boss at work who is going to make decisions that you disagree with because your boss isn't perfect. You serve those, you agree with those, you don't publicly or behind the scenes sneak in behind them or spread gossip or rumors that you can undercut what the superior is trying to do. You defer and serve with no regard for the deserving nature of the person or the thing that's in authority. Meaning you obey the scripture, you follow the scripture because you put it into, you put it into the place of the scripture, into the place of authority in your life 
that holds authority over everything else. The Bible says this is how I should live. And so I'm going to live like this. I can think of 10 other ways to live that would be better. But the scripture says this is the best way. And so I'm going to do this thing over here. You see, those humility isn't this switch that you can turn on. It's this thing that you lifestyle into where you say, here's what's in authority over me, and I'm going to serve and defer to that authority. I used to work at South Albany Church, and my pastor's name was John Breitmeier. And I owe most of my ministry life to John Breitmeier. When I was looking for jobs uh, as a youth pastor in 2002, 2003, I took a couple trips around the country, and I was like, oh, I can minister here. I can like, I have nothing. We lived, I went to school in Georgia. There's very, very little that holds me down to any place, right? I serve Jesus, and that's my idea. My goal in life is to be very healthy and outlive my wife so I can plant churches in France. There's no Christians in France, right? Like, French people are pagan, and I would love to plant churches there. I have to learn better French, but anyway. Uh, my wife doesn't want to go there because she's sane. Um, <laughs> I, w- I-, I want to do these things. I went to South Albany Church because John Breitmeyer, I thought, was a guy I could learn from. And so I went there. And John and me were both very driven people. Uh, we were both very aggressive in our beliefs. We both said, this is my opinion. It's the best idea. If it wasn't, I would change my opinion. Right? And you think that's pride. That's just conviction. Right? <laughs> you say I'm cocky. I say I've been convinced. <laughs> that's the worst. <laughs> but, but there is this, like, passion in what we did and what we believed And we would be in staff meetings. I don't know if you understand this. Churches meet together as like all their staff. And you don't know this, but they're all humans. And some of them are having a bad day. And some of them have opinions. And some of them disagree, just like they disagree in your staff meeting at your work. People have conflicts. I know you think pastors are all holy. Um, We just dress nice on Sundays, right? Like there, there are things that pastors struggle with like everybody else struggles with. And John and I would have knock down, drag out discussions in a staff meeting And neither of us would notice that everyone else was leaning back in their chairs and covering their face with their reports, like looking at each other like, what is going on? Do you know something? That I would never, ever publicly say something negative about my pastor John. And John would never, ever publicly say something negative about me. And because we had that trust with each other, And we would say negative things to each other. When we were planting this church, we had two-hour prayer and argument meetings every week. (laughs) Two hours. We would have staff meeting Tuesday afternoon, starting at 1, and at 10 o'clock I would go into his office and we would argue over things and pray for each other because we knew our commitment to each other was more important than our own opinions and our own thoughts because the holiness in that relationship, and I know I'm going on and on about this, but the holiness in that relationship was more important to both of us than the achievement that would build our pride. We both could have done things that would make ourselves look better in other people's eyes. And we both, to this day, have things that the other person has done that we don't like that they did. 
I feel that way about John. John feels that way about me. But the holiness of our relationship is more important. King David, hiding in a cave. King David's a king in the Bible. He's hiding in a cave, and King Saul is trying to kill him. King Saul goes into the cave. This is why this story is hilarious. This is the last thing I'm going to say. King Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself, which is hilarious because David's hiding in that cave with his band of guys that are hiding from being killed by King Saul. David sneaks up behind King Saul when he's relieving himself in the worst kind of way. He pulls out his knife, and he can kill King Saul right there. But because King Saul is the chosen by God leader of Israel, David reaches up and cuts, this is how close he was, cuts part of Saul's garment, like they all wore these toga type things, cuts the corner of it off. This is how loud revealing, relieving himself was for Saul. He cuts the corner of it off and Saul doesn't notice. Saul leaves the cave. David walks out and holds up the piece of material. Everyone in David's group is like, why didn't you kill him? Then we don't have to live in caves that smell like relieving yourself. (laughs) Because the scriptural way of serving Jesus is not to take down the person in charge. The scriptural way of following Jesus is the humility that the person in charge gives you. Whether that, and I know this is a political climate, so some of you are thinking of the guy in charge at the top of America, but it goes all the way down to your boss, your teacher, your parents, and some of those suck at what they do. Some of you have lousy parents, and like maybe they're trying hard, but they're just not good at it. Maybe you're doing things on your smartphone that they've never heard of before and they don't know how to parent you and so they're freaking out. Now, you might have a boss who shouldn't be in charge. You might have a teacher who got their degree from a bubblegum machine and can't teach their way out of a paper bag. And the scriptural thing to do is to submit to their authority and obey what they say Follow their lead. And not work for the greatness of yourself by taking them down, but work for the greatness of the person who God has given you to serve. Is this not the radical statement of the gospel? In a time when what we want Jesus to say is, it's all about you. Build yourself up. God is here to make you great. And I've got this revival series where God's going to bring you back to life. And what I'm telling you today is, Naaman decided he was great. And he wasn't healed until he decided he was humble enough to obey the man of God, the voice of God, and go baptize himself in the Jordan River seven times. King David didn't think he was great enough to kill the guy who was trying to kill him. (laughs) Your boss, your teacher, your parents, generally, aren't trying to kill you. And so your humility is never more than God himself would ask for. Philippians 2 has a passage called the kenosis. And it says, Jesus, who in himself, being of the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead took, the, took, taking on, took on the form of a human and lived as a servant, serving 
even to the point of death. You will never be asked to serve in the way that Jesus did. But Jesus lived a life of ultimate humility, showing that Christ in you can live the life of humility that you're called to. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm hoping you can think about what goes in the sentence, I will follow God anywhere except right here. What's after that except line? And that thing right there, I'm telling you today is what God is calling you to. Because as soon as you've got an accept, it's because you've got a conviction that that's the thing that you're supposed to be doing. And so you've built this accept to avoid the conviction. And so I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to ask that you pray in your own heart that God will make, it, make you unable to avoid your exception. That God will either lead you to hum humbleness or humiliate you to humbleness so that you can live the greatest life that God has for you. Let's stand. I'm going to pray that way. If you don't want to pray that way, leave your eyes open so you'll see the lightning hitting you. Jesus, Jesus, I'm going to ask for all of us because I have my exceptions and all of us have our exceptions. I'm going to ask that you would be greater in our life than our exceptions, greater in our life than the thing that goes at the end of our sentence. I will follow you anywhere. I will do what you call me to do, except I, I cannot or I will not go here. It's too humiliating. It's too simple. It's too narrow. All across this room, God, we can think of those things. And I'm going to ask that you would lead us there, bring revival to our lives, but not just a superficial, silly, excited revival, but a revival that goes into the core of our being, a revival that strips away the costume of pride that we hide who you are in us with. Save us from the pride that so easily entangles us and allow us to follow you on your path of service, of humiliation, of simplicity, your narrow path to serving others, even to the point where our life is no longer as important as the life of the people that we get to serve. Deserving people, undeserving people, people like us, people not like us, people who are with us and people who are against us. Give us a radical nature of the gospel in our life that shows itself in its radical confrontation with the culture that surrounds us that says it's all about us and let us be all about you and therefore all about the people that we have the opportunity to serve. Make us great in our descending, not in our ascending. Make us great in the number of people we serve and the low, low stature people that we get to serve. Give us enough power in our life that we can choose the humility in your spirit, by your grace and your patience. We pray this together. Amen.